All right. Welcome to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is uh, Ryan Mahoney broadcasting from uh, Middle Middle Tennessee, right? Would that would what you call it or Middle Southern or what would you call it? Yeah, Kettle Mills, Tennessee. Kettle Mills, Tennessee. And to- an hour south of Nashville. Today I'm joined by my good friend Sam Kennedy. And Sam, I, I met you, gosh, six, seven years ago. Longer than that. Is it longer than that? Eight? I think 2014, however long that, I think that was the first time you came out. 2014, uh, me and Robert Irwin ended up traveling to Tennessee to learn about Katahdin sheep and foot health. <laughs> and uh, Or lack of foot health. Yeah, well, we ended up, yeah, we, we were uh, being from California and <laughs> dealing with all the foot rot we have. We figured we'd come out and try to help, and I think we did more damage than more more bad than good. But we learned a lot and made some good friends, and so here we are. So welcome, Sam, and you want to introduce yourself, who you are, and and uh, yeah, sure. I mean, the the whole tale. You want me to start from the beginning, or just... I'll get there. Okay. You, yeah, right, you can well, give the brief, and then we'll just dive uh, deep uh, later uh, on. Sam, but... Sam Kennedy, uh, we're you know. Born and raised here in, around Columbia, Tennessee, Murray County, which is um, we're sort of in, in one of the historic <clears throat> bluegrass regions of the east. So that there was grass here, you know, pre-settlement, and uh, we get about 56 inches of rain a year. Um, and we run a, a very intensive rotational grazing style deal, you know, very very much managed by holistic, um, influenced by holistic management, um, but we have cow calf we we retain our own calves through the stalker phase we have ewe lamb we finish lambs also and um those are our main enterprises so and then when i met you you did chickens and a lot of direct sales and you scaled back from that yeah so yeah so like 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 many of us i uh so i was you were doing it all when uh, I met you. That yeah. was I was I was blown away by how much you were doing. Yeah. So when I first moved home, I went. To, I was in the Navy for six years prior to prior to moving home, and uh, of course, like many of us, I read Joel Salatin's books, and you know he he made me a believer, which is which is good. So we came home and we were direct marketing and doing pasture broilers, and I think we even had a few goats back then, and cows and yeah. sheep and. Right. I think there I've always thought there's a lot of like value in in um like the Joel Salatin model is everybody that tries it thinks back. I did way more than I could have, but all of them end up scaling back to what they like and what they're good at and still use a lot of the principles. And I think it's always really good actually to kind of put your push yourself too far and then like scale back. You yeah. learn you learn your own boundaries, you learn the the limits of your own ground. You know, there's a lot of great principles on there. Oh yeah, yeah. And, but it's like every other thing. Every farm's different. Yeah, he's made it work, and I've known people who have sort of made his exact model work. But usually, people start that way and then kind of find their own route. Or yeah, or it's easy up, to burn out doing that much work. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, yeah. No, we did that for, and it, a lot of it was driven by our land base. When I first moved home, I had, you know, my parents' farm where I grew up was about 200 acres, and that's all I had access to. So uh, you, we felt like value add, you know, was what we had to do. Um, and then, uh, you know, just just other opportunities came along, and I, I married well, married into a lot of land, and uh, <laughs> and and we've since bought some land. And I guess it was about 2018 we we sold our 
chicken business to our our partners and they still run it and still do a bunch of pasture broilers on my parents farm which is very cool that's awesome um, and they kind of took that and scaled it and ran with it and we um we've scaled up the grazing operation and yeah. now manage about three thousand acres on four tracks so that's awesome and right and we're sitting you call this the kettle yeah and yeah. i mean it you said you, I think you told me your family settled here how long ago, or how long have you guys been here? And they, yeah. So I, my fourth great grandfather came in here around 1810, and yeah. he he bought up a bunch of Revolutionary War land grants. He didn't serve himself, but he you know they were in North Carolina, and he bought them from other folks and came and settled them. So. Yeah. And we, that was when Tennessee was the West, right? Yeah. That was, yeah. I've, it was, yeah. A totally different time. I was reading uh, some of the journals and stuff, and it's hard to imagine now, but their biggest issues were bears and wolves getting after the livestock. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And uh, what, what was the ground like? I mean, it was pretty pretty jungle. Pretty. I mean, you get a lot of rain, a lot of growth. I mean, it seems like um, you get trees growing in about six months. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of trees, but a lot of people don't realize that the the buffalo weren't too far gone from here oh yeah in 1810 and middle tennessee in particular is similar to lexington like there were some grasslands and savannas and yeah um now there's still a lot of trees too but at yeah. any rate um what 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 do you think I mean, this is a random question but what what's kind of the the most unique kind of ecological benefit of this area or unknown or unrealized i mean this is such a neat area uh, if you're in the basin, we have, um, you know, historically very fertile soil, at least in phosphorus content. And then we're also pretty close to limestone. So, uh, you know, depending yeah. on how it's been farmed, at least it was considered good yeah. ground for a while. Yeah. Um, so. And then in the kettle, it's a, it's basically a, it's a ring of mountains with a hole in the middle. Yeah. Almost kind of like a kettle. Well, yeah, where yeah. we are, where we're looking at is where the Duck River cuts out of the Middle Tennessee Basin, which goes all the way up to Nashville. Like, if you drive out of Nashville, you'll see all of a sudden you're coming up this big hill, and then you're back on a different level. And so the big hill we're sitting on right now, we're on Highland Rim soils looking down into the basin right now. Okay. So. What, what, are, um, what are some of your, you know, since you've kind of come back here and with the grazing, what what are some of the challenges and getting the ground to work back or you know what what are some of the things when you get a new ranch or you know go into a place that hasn't been grazed for a while what are kind of some of those goals that you're looking for to try to get that back to what you envision as so healthy? yeah well we're you know i think it takes 10 years before you yeah. like if i knew how hard it was going to be when i started probably wouldn't have but <laughs> yeah, well, we've made it this far <laughs> uh and just now sort of starting to realize just how much we don't know still but at any rate most of the land has you know either been pretty continuously cropped or hayed now for 200 years and like um or it's been in a you know i guess some, most of the farms we've been taking over are some level of degradation and we're trying to get the soil to come back alive as i call it you know get the soil biology kicking again uh, start to build organic matter. Um, we've so far not done any, many purchased inputs, and I'm not sure that's the right way to go, but we, we haven't so far. And uh, do you know, like, if you take a look at, like, a neighbor cow, I mean, uh, 
like a neighbor cow operation you look at the inputs you talked a lot about feeding hay and what a lot of them do and you're droughted out right now so you're kind of facing yeah. having to feed hay but um what are your what are your opinions of kind of profitability and production when you when you kind of compare what you're doing with your grasses to you know kind of the traditional more set stock type yeah. operations um well i don't you know if i don't see how a cow is worth fooling with really if you yeah. don't try to try to really at this point especially now that you know with the recent inflation and fertilizer prices and stuff it used to be and we produce a ton of hay because we get a lot of rain but it's yeah. not very good quality and it used to be that it did make sense to feed hay because you could get it so cheap um and be and push a higher stocking rate so most people will be feeding from like thanksgiving to april even though we and it does get cold we get first frost and you know the end of october but no I, now i think you need to be at a no hay position with your cows yeah um no hay or a little hay you know maybe 30 days have some insurance hay on hand which we we do we're ready to feed if we need to be but yeah. um but uh but also it's hard usually you'll end up feeding hay to the cows and leaving the good stockpile for the sheep so how how have you used the sheep and cattle to complement each other have you um well we started out like you know or really my parents when I was in college in the Navy, they started out with the first sheep. I think they went to a Jim Garrish grazing deal and heard the classic like one ewe per cow. And and they were part-timers, but trying to figure out how to make the family farm pay for itself like a lot of us. And um, and that kind of, for years we ran them all together, sheep, cows, and goats. But I've as we've gotten more numbers, that doesn't work quite as well as it, it used to. But uh, they eat different things. The biggie around here is they're a dead end host for a lot of the parasites, and that's a big deal. Um, have you seen where have you seen the improvement in the parasite? Have you seen it more in the cattle and the sheep, or sheep and cattle? I mean, it, or just less overall in general? Just less. If moving the sheep onto clean ground is a big, you know, a big big deal, and so if you've got cows on a place for a while and then put sheep on it, it's that's better for sheep health. I'll be darned. Yeah. And that, and that, uh, that to you is more critical, the more parasite load you have. So the more, I mean, you guys are in parasite paradise down here. Yeah. You, and so the more critical it is, <laughs> the more important it is to kind of have that. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, you know, and what right or wrong, like I said, we're still figuring out yeah. our deal 10 years in start. I think starting to kind of get our models where I have a good idea what's going to work, but the entire time our focus has been selecting on adaptability to our humid world yeah, with both the sheep and the cattle and really our low quality forage world. Um, yeah. And so talk, talk about uh, your sheep a little bit. You got, you know, you, you raise Katahdin's. Yes. And so then <laughs> how do you market them? How do you, you know, give us, give us your, it's all I've ever known. Quick I've, I've never had any other kind of sheep. I hardly know the other, you know, the wool breeds other than hanging out with uh, my ASI buddies. Yeah. But, but uh, so anyway, my parents got the first six. I think by the time I moved home, you know, we'd grown internally to about uh, 60. And then uh, the time I met you guys, I'd, you know, hey, these things are just easy. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're way easier than cows and they just make twins and, 
And I tried to grow a little faster and bought in a fraught, and we were up to about 400 ewes when I called y'all for the emergency uh, assistance. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best story. I mean, that was so much fun. I I had never I hadn't met you before I flew out here and Rob called and told me, Hey, I got this guy, a buddy of mine in Tennessee, he needs some help trimming feet or learning about foot rot. And I was like, Well, let's yeah. just go. So I think I bought a ticket and told Rob when we were going and just flew out here. So it was Yeah, and of course great. prior to that, I you know, I don't get hoof rot. I I rotationally gray, you know, and yeah. And we had it bad, and they just lambed. So there was like yep. nine hundred sheep. With it was it was brutal, brutal couple of days of work. Yeah. But, but at any rate, um, so now we you know we we lamb on pasture. Um, we the ethnic market of course is very strong, and that's sort of what drives everything around here. But most of our lambs right now actually were GAP certified, and they're they're going through a brand called Four Hills and the Whole Foods. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's been a been a good deal. Do you sell them like bulk all once or are you peeling off, you know, 50 to 100 at a time? And that, yeah, like 70 to 100 at a whack. Yeah. Um, and that's been a, you know, it's been a good market, but I've had to learn how to yeah. finish lambs, which is a different how, skill set. How do you or how, how have you adapted to the GAP certification program? That's main, one of the main reasons I did is because it didn't, we were already doing pretty much all of it anyways. It just had to add the record keeping. Yeah. Um, it's, it kind of matches with our low input, yeah. more management philosophy. Um, so That's neat. I know there's been a lot of, like, the gap. There, it's been developed a little differently in different regions, and that's been a challenge sometimes is some of, like, the worldwide standards being applied to the U.S. unique situation. I think in the... Excuse me. I think down here, it's a little more reflective of other areas. But like on the west, the Western Range sheep herder, you know, band of ewes on the mountains, the way that operates, and just the natural flow of when you lamb, when you mark, when you move, has been hard to adapt to gap for a lot of people. But then I think they have made some good changes. And if you can, if you can get the market for that, I mean, it certainly seems to pay pretty darn well. So I think yeah. so. We're I guess just and it's nice to kind of lock up a sort of a direct buyer, right? Like, yeah, that's kind of pretty cool. One of the things that you guys have taught me, and it's so true, farming, right? It's still a relationship deal. Yeah, like you, you know. Um, but yeah, it's good to have at least some part of your crop that you kind of know what what you're going to get for it, and yeah, got a place to go. Yeah. So you uh, you you were raised with few sheep and uh, a small farm. So to say, and then yeah. you, now this is your full time gig, pretty much. You, yep. How how yep. do you how'd you go from navy to <laughs> the the king of kettle mills here? <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I can't take a lot of credit. Just I was, a lot of times I say my my dead ancestors are pulling strings for me, right? But, but <laughs> it's not like my. My wife and I, our families have both been around here a long time. We have, you know, fortunate enough to have access to family land, and we grew up. It wasn't like we weren't around agriculture. You know, our our grandparents all had farmed. Um, we grew up hunting and fishing all over Middle Tennessee, and just really developed a love for the land. And yeah. and I was like, man, if I could not have to drive to town, and uh, and uh, so that was the original sort of goal, and uh. I've, I mean, you saw my library. I've, I've read, 
I don't know how many gajillions of farming and grazing yeah. books. And but you keep asking and, me if yeah. I read this guy. I'm, nope. This guy. Nope. You read yeah. this guy. Nope. <laughs> but so, in a way, though, I mean, I, it, I guess I wasn't encumbered because our parents weren't full-time farmers. We didn't. We didn't have to deal with. Well, we've always done it this way. And there's, there's good in that and bad in that. Like I've, I'm envious of your mentor, uh, being able to ask your grandpa for advice and stuff. And I don't have that as much. Yeah. Uh, but well, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm very blessed with having my grandpa around, but then at the same time being able to come kind of look at the ranch from a non-traditional view. I mean, I was, you know, I went to college, played football and got a degree in religious studies. Like none of that has anything to do with agriculture. Yeah. I did. I did work in a beer department during college <laughs> yeah, at a liquor store. So, I mean, I guess that helps a little bit with, lunch but um yeah outside of that it's it's pretty amazing how coming in, into agriculture with a with a passion for it but then an openness to trying all sorts of different things because i mean the ag has changed so much over the last hundred years with the invention of the synthetic fertilizers and the changing in farming practices the consolidations of uh, food systems or the integration of food systems. I mean, there's been so much change over the last really 60 to a hundred years. Uh, you really need to start rethinking how you're, you just need to be constantly analyzing how the markets and things are working because they're changing so quick. And I think yeah. the sheep industry is probably the best example of that with the, the incredible, I don't know, the, the Renaissance of the sheep in the Southwest or Southeast yeah combined with the decline on the west like you go out to my side of the country and everybody's talking about selling out and dropping numbers and all of this stuff you know whatever you call it falling apart and then you come out here and every single ranchette's got 10 to 100 ewes in their building all yeah. of them yeah all of a sudden everybody wants to get into sheep and yeah. they, they do fit you know 200 acres is still a big farm around here and they do fit our scale well and yeah i will say i think that's part of the reason i still do sheep is just especially i think they're easy to get up to about 200 and then yeah then then they become more so it's almost like job protection because a lot of people will think <laughs> yeah. they're gonna do it and they the sheep can be tough you know it's, yeah uh, especially in this part of the world it can be yeah, we like to say, like uh, you know, at, at Lamin, we'll, we'll say twice the twice the use is triple the work. You know, once you once you get to a scale, it seems like you go from a, you lamb a thousand use, and then you try to lamb fifteen hundred, and it's not just a little bit more work; it's like triple the work you were doing before. It's a different it, beast. It definitely compounds as you increase. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people are talking. Not many woolies, but. Uh, yeah. yeah how um how important have you um with the katahdin breed i know just nationally they're very well known for their their genetic work their understanding of parasite load foot health like within their breeds and selecting rams and th things how um did you ever did you lean on local resources that were connected to help you kind of build the flock that you had have now or you know how did you go about getting into the learning about the katahdins and learning how to improve your sheep for what you needed here 
Yeah, def- there's a there's a handful. There's not a lot, but there's a handful of producers for, who sort of from the beginning have kept the data on parasite resistance and have, um, you know, been driving their flocks for the commercial producer for for pasture systems down here and um and i've leaned on those guys um to start with though it was kind of you know maybe not right or wrong we just haven't ever given the inputs just through culling alone you know and then i did two years ago i did kind of make one big one more kind of growth push and bought some was very careful to buy you lambs from a guy who manages very similarly and has been you know not deworming for many years now i say not deworming but not um abusing the tool of the wormers and so that but now we're close flock and i think that's a big deal do you think the like the parasites do you think they're very local where like your parasites here are going to be different and it might be not necessarily in the 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 strain of parasite but in their resistance and their susceptibility to the different medicines yeah 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 and i even think and that's your biggest driver sounds like yeah i mean the hoof rot was a big i was like i'm not staying in the sheep business if i got a trim feet you know (laughs) so blame you so that was kind of well if i can find a sheep that's not going to die i don't have to trim feet then we'll keep doing this and yeah we have so um but what were we talking about um Paris, oh, local lot, yeah, yeah, and I think even like sheep from a good flock will go to another farm, and there will be some attrition just adapting yeah. to the new management and the new whatever's yeah. going on at the new place, even if it's not that far away. Um, yeah, so I agree. Uh, yeah, and it seems like even like the especially in your climates that don't really hard freeze or get super hot, uh, super dry heat. It seems like they um, those bugs they just live longer and so then when you bring something else in the immunities aren't there and they just pick them up yeah yeah Yeah. their pressure never really goes away it's not as bad in the winter but um i don't see how you do i don't say you do sheep without some kind of rotation down here um just to manage parasites how Um, how has it been working with neighbors and everything i mean you know sheep are pretty new for <laughs> yeah the air i mean they're old for the area they everybody had sheep when they settled but then they disappeared and now they're kind of you're bringing them back how do you you have any good stories or any uh i don't know maybe you don't want to say stories because the names but <laughs> no the, not everyone there's such pretty, a um new thing everybody kind of like you know people drive down our road to stop and take pictures um of course there's awesome there's probably not another group with as many sheep in it or i know there's not yeah. but um but our uh, prices have been so good or even the old cowboys that they aren't laughing anymore you know yeah <laughs> uh they may not get into it but they're they know you know how over the last five or six years, like just in your markets, have you seen stable prices? Have you seen, you know, what, what, you know, we've seen a lot of volatility in our world. You know, how has it been for you marketing your lambs year in, year out? Has it been pretty stable? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, we, it's some volatility. Of course, it, since like everything since COVID, it's just been sort of nuts yeah. um, in a good way. But I will say the whole time I've been at, they've always been better than cattle prices. Yeah. And I, if you do a good job with your sheep, even at the same prices, I think they're they're better, yeah. um, more efficient. But 
but that's easier said than done. But at any rate, but yeah. I still question. I know our market's taking a lot more volume now, but it, it wouldn't be hard to flood a sale, a local sale. You know. Um, yeah. You aren't. But that's also why you develop like a direct relationship <laughs> yeah. and gap certify and you know build those relationships so that way you're not dependent on one sale barn getting flooded with volume and you know not enough buyers sitting in the stands kind yeah. of thing yeah yeah um, but our we're that is one advantage we have we're close to the columbia sale barn which is sort of developing into a regional i mean it pulls from all the states around when you're close to te to pennsylvania yeah new Holland's not out of reach either and that's the um, that's the best sheep market in the u.s yeah e week in week out yeah so and your diesel's like two dollars a gallon cheaper than ours so well, <laughs> you, you can move them around i know a lot of you californians are starting to figure that out <laughs> gosh yeah i think we were up to seven bucks a gallon for our diesel here not too long ago i've been just yeah. every gas station i'm looking at the sign just shaking my head <laughs> yeah but yeah. our world like you said our, our world's changing through um just as far as you know number of people moving in here farming's going to be a different game in the next generation yeah so, so I, we've talked about it a lot before we sat down and hit record but um i think you're similar with me as far as valuing the the legacy of ranching and and it seems like you don't do it for just straight you you know profitability and running a good business is important and integral to success but at the same time the reason you're choosing this lifestyle has a lot to do with family values, raising your kids in a culture you appreciate, getting letting them experience. I mean, we got to float the river and like get, having them being able to experience that kind of stuff. You want to talk maybe just a little bit about the importance of that aspect yeah. of this lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, it's. Um yeah, where do I start? Um, right, <laughs> it's just good. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. It is like it, the world. You know, not only a well-run farm it is, has so much significance to society. You know that not only are you, uh, you know, it's sort of a buzzword, but we're providing environmental services, right? If I, if we yeah. don't do a good job out here, our friends in the city don't have clean air, clean water. Um, you know, not to mention abundant food, but there's also a you know, cultural values that go with so much of, I think, the work ethic of our country. And there's just so much you can learn from the culture of agriculture, right? Yeah, I think, I think like the environmental, the environmental services, I, I, I don't know how to articulate it better or, you know, more clear because you have, you have environmental organizations that are based in urban areas that have goals and they set and a lot of times it's pie in the sky or it's misunderstood yeah. but when you when you get to live and work in a landscape you understand the environmental goals that they have the idealistic goals you're able to translate them into realistic goals and like know actually what it means to have see a healthy environment to see the the diversity within your pastures to see the i mean just the I mean, I've never seen so many different butterflies in my life than just driving around your little, you know, your your little corner of the world yeah, here. It's yeah. just, it's incredible the amount of diversity and and on a farm, your kids are actually able to see real environmental stewardship yeah. and real environmental health. And so then when you go and actually 
engage with the more urban environmental movements, you're able to actually bring a real informative decision, you know, opinions and, and kind of help, yeah. help guide that a little bit. I mean, better. it's what the world needs. We don't need yeah. another subdivision, you know? Uh-uh. And, and like you keep saying what's real, what's real. Like it is the ultimate interaction and it's a spiritual thing too. Like yeah. if all you ever see is concrete, your view of the creation is just not complete, you know? Yeah. Uh, so at any rate, at some point I'll figure out one of the things we want to do is figure out how to start to share that with the, you know, all those aspects with the public more. Yeah. Um, but no, it, there's more to it. And of course it's gotta be a, it's gotta be a profitable business, right? Or it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't go, but. And I do think, I mean, I, I always, I've said it a million times on this thing, but I, I do think profitability is connected to a healthy ranch like you mentioned like i think you said just a second ago like your kids being able to experience a a healthy run farm or a well-run farm like there's an economic component to that well-run farm that is connected to the health herd health connected to pasture health connected to environmental stewardship because and and ultimately connected to our health yeah everybody yeah yeah um so yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we, yeah, <laughs> why we do this. Uh, what what about? I mean, you you know, I mean, this is you're you're doing the math in my head. You're 213 years in this spot, your family. Like, yeah. I mean, that's that's another aspect of that raising your kids in this environment. I mean, you have you said you're four great, so then it would be your kids five great. I mean, that's seven yeah. generations or yeah, something I think they're, they're the eighth eighth yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean that's i don't know there's something special about that too right yeah it, it is um i think it's a good thing you know I, I, wendell berry is another one of my favorites and it's talking about you know sort of the theme of place and 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 taking care of the part of the world that you're in and knowing it well um i try not to I think it can kind of, you know, you need to get out and see other things. It doesn't need to be the end all be all, but it's a cool thing and we're going to try to keep it going. Yeah. So. I mean, you don't want to, you want to be open to new practices and ideas and all that other stuff. But I mean, I, I know that, I mean, I, there's a, there's a connection to where your family's from and I, there, there's just something there that makes it more meaningful like you talk about a sustainability is like a buzzword i guess they're trying to get rid of that one now it's regenerative regenerative we're on the regenerative which yeah, is a re- good one regenerative like it. it's good but the sustainable like you know these generational farms that have been successful tend to be sustainable because they've taken care of their environment they've taken care of the area and you know there's always when with families and generational farming you always have splits you have schisms you have issues the longer you go the more you're going to have those issues but that's also a testament to the family that you know you are still there and because most people don't make it (laughs) most people sell out most people move out like i don't know there's just something there that i just i think is pretty special and worth acknowledging but. Yeah, and then a lot of it's just, it's like you got to do the right things and have good luck. And a lot of it did have to do with the fact that for a couple, you know, two generations, we've made our living elsewhere, so we didn't have to 
you know, the family has you know, done other things and I didn't have a sibling that wanted to farm. You know, I was yeah. the only one that wanted to do it. So, so um, I mean, it's similar to me. I have brother and sister and neither of them want to farm. You yeah. know, they want to, they, they want to, they want to make, they have a, they have a love for it. They want to see it keep going, but they don't want to farm. That's yeah. just not their, so. not their calling. But, um, no, there's something to, you know, people move around so much, but you, you take care of a place better if it's your home, you know, and yeah. that's kind of what you so much of, well, I don't want to get off negative. So, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. so much of what we do is just sort of consumptive in, in yeah. many ways. And you move somewhere and build a home on a fire, a farm that's been there, you know, a million years and I don't know. Any rate, let's talk some sheep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I just, I mean, I love the, for me, I get I get really excited about the legacy. Well, and, and, it, it, and it just, yeah. to me, it's just, that's one of those things that I think makes agriculture unique. You know, you have all other industries, you have a, you know, you have a titan of business come in, buy it all out, expand it, everything's great. Yeah. But, like, then the story just ends in, like, a, either, like, a hedge fund or a trust fund or, you know, it just kind of ends but with farming, we've been able to like maintain this. There's a legacy there. There's a story told in all these hills. Like yeah. every one of these pastures, you like, I don't know, driving around the amount of houses that are like falling down that have stories. There's stories, there's families, there's history. Like there's just, there's something there that is just so amazing. And I think, you know, I think a big part of like people's drive to, to move out to a five acre farm is to get back to yeah. experience Be some part of, that. of that. Like, yeah. and, you know, you see the huge, everybody wants to go glamping now and move their $500,000 yeah. trailer out in the middle of the sticks and live there for a couple of weeks. But it's like, it's to experience that realness, that life that yeah, and I is don't, farming. That's and, what, I don't blame them for that. They yeah, need it, it's, you know? it's like yeah. built in our DNA to want that, right? Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's so, it, when you see your kids interacting on a, you, you let them loose in a field and you watch them play and you realize how innate it is in us to want to be connected to the ground and see nature and you know experience life yeah like it just it's amazing so yep anyway we that's totally not cheap but that's what i like talking no, about so follow me well yeah uh so uh so what are uh oh who are some of the people you like to lean on or you know what are some of the influences you've had and the sheep deal, um, well, I, th I think I've told you and Robert, you know, if it hadn't been for my, for you guys, I would have quit the sheep a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is hilarious because we came out and we just hacked off the feet of a bunch of your sheep. You know, not literally, but we, we trimmed a yeah, bunch we of feet. Did. We worked super hard and didn't accomplish much and we but we i don't know it was a lot of fun and yeah <laughs> just, and that's awesome been so, you know several ups and downs since then but no i mean I, it's so critical to, to build a network of i've got another good friend jim maluli who's kind of been on a similar sheep journey to me here in tennessee and then um, another old mentor greg brand who is the state grazing specialist for many many years but he ran you know ran sheep and was probably our initial reason for getting into them but there's not a ton of sheep knowledge around you know it's it's very jungle knowledge kind of like there's not yeah. many old timers doing it around here well and so um, much of it isn't written right it's yeah. like it's learned and orally passed on and yeah yeah um so but that and um who else have i 
and that's really it talking to you guys and a handful of books and and i I still don't really feel like i know what i'm doing a lot which you know well that's the secret is that you realize you don't know what you're doing you're just kind of working with it and yeah uh i guess it's fun though It's, it's so you know you can't predict a drought you can't predict a flood. You can't predict a disease outbreak. You, you can manage for a lot of it. You can hedge against it, but biology is biology, and nature's nature's, and God's God, and <laughs> you can't control any of it. And <laughs> so, the sheep will show you each one of those. Oh, things. and you just learn it. And, <laughs> but it's that's what's kind of I don't know. For me, it's what's so exciting about it is that you just you're always learning every yeah. day. And yeah, no yeah. no year's been the same yet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, so you do. Uh, you're pretty intensive on your rotations and things. Yep. And so, what do you you you're rotating? You're rotating your heifers twice a day. Yep. Right rotating now. your sheep every three or four days, something like that. Yeah. You're about to wean, so. Yeah, and we're generally the rule: no more than three days in a spot, to because yep. the you know the little bugs start hatching out and you start picking up parasite and that's a grass thing too because you start getting regrowth after three days and you don't want them to take the second bite so it's a lot of sort of natural principles that overlap what Um, are some of the key measurements you're looking at for success oh or what are the things (laughs) you're really trying to measure to gauge whether you're doing what you want yeah i mean so we're selecting for adaptivity so i do we don't ever mass treat you know we'll we'll worm the ewes that need it and then if we have to worm them again they start you know they go on our we may not call them but they'll be on our bottom list right the first ones to go if we can ever get so sort of adaptabilities first and then fertility um we're keeping track of who has twins who raises twins is a big thing so and i that's pretty labor intensive right now we're we're tagging them in the field and scanning them in and so i know who had twins and then at weaning i'll know who brought them in yeah. you know and eventually start keeping replacements just out of those who but, uh, or what software you use what hardware you're using uh we're using the uh Shearwell tags and then a program called Livestocked, um, which has been pretty good. It's I saw it's on your cell phone. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, um, and the, it's a small company, but they're really responsive to uh, you know our request for changes. And where are they out of? The guy's from Australia that's developing yeah. it. I think he lives in Florida now. Oh, and, cool. Um, but it was the only one I could find that you know we used to use Cattle Max, but. It was the only one I could find that did cattle and sheep. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's been good. It's not, not perfect yet, but it, yeah. it's been a good tool. Um, and then I saw you got my favorite HR5 scanning wand. Yeah. Gallagher wand. I've got that borrowed from a buddy. I need to give that back to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's been borrowed. I probably need to just buy it now. You probably ought to buy one. Yeah. They're yeah. pretty. Those, But I love those things. Those yeah. things are great, especially for pairing. Yeah, that's Mother good. The lambing, I have a little handheld one that's oh, yeah? better. Um, can you get the U easy? No. Yeah. So we. You, that's our, why I like that HR5 because you can just kind of yeah, swing not, it and catch that not, U. Not with our use. Yeah, they're <laughs> you a little squirrely. No, up. you won't be able to scan them. So we have v- visual ID tags on all of them too. Oh, perfect. And um, 
that's how we're doing it so far. Do you do any color coding for years or aging, any of that stuff? Or we do the letter. Um, letter know, on the visual, but yeah. then the shear well is just this. You do any color difference or just all yellow? No, we're all yellow. And we I should have known that. I looked at them yesterday. Yeah. But we do the same on the same system for the cattle. So yeah. everybody's got, when they lose a tag, they've still got their button yep. or the visual. And yeah. Um, so that yeah, if step one is adaptability. Then it you know if we ever get our maternal down, then we may start playing with ter uh, terminal sires to get better growth. But right now it's just something that'll live. What's so. your uh, what's your perfect sheep? <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm not. I, I will say our our what our world produces right now with our nutrient resources. I guess that would be called the what the the genetic. Um, what gets expressed yeah. is about 125 pound use. What yeah. what we average, um, and we, you know, I think we can get a hundred. The goal would be 150 percent weaned off pasture. Um, we've been growing every year and keeping new lambs, so we haven't hit that. I did hit it one year back when we had about 200 use. Yeah. You know, um, but as as we've grown the pasture lambing becomes a as we're talking about it's a bit bit different nice thing work. to manage yeah. yeah we used to just up to about 200 it, for a while it was just kind of like land race like, like they lived they did whatever yeah. they wanted but um so it's amazing how much you can increase that percentage though by a good lambing on pasture versus yeah i mean you really do add Add, man you add value right that's a good yeah. way to make sure you add value which is one of the ways profitability is linked to herd health right you know the better job you do the more money you make the healthier your flock are and the less dead yeah. lambs you have yeah it just all works and together. all the and i think you know i think that parasite resistant ebvs are important but more and yeah. more i think it's just good nutrition <laughs> you yeah. know overall like the ones that have good feet also don't have usually don't have parasite issues yeah and so that's been a learning part of the deal. Do you have any CL or you ever like any of that? I have not tested. Uh, you know, I've, there's a lump every denalian out there. Yeah, that but like, nothing eh. like major. You no. know, they don't all have lumpy throats or anything. No, no. I yeah. think, you know. They uh, look great yesterday. I mean, I was really impressed because you're weaning tomorrow. I think yep. I said that already, but they, you know, the body condition on the ewes was good. The lambs were, you know, really healthy and shiny and. They look. Uh, they knock, look great. So. Knock on wood. I yeah, well, get to tomorrow. I don't think we'll. Yeah. I don't think we'll. We'll probably be somewhere around 110 percent wean somewhere in there. Yeah. But we had a lot of ewe lambs, so that's good. Didn't lamb. So. Yeah. Um, what else? Good. So when you you uh, you're seasonal, so you when do you throw the rams? When do you? Yeah. So you, give I, me your you know, schedule. Everything we do, right, is quote mimic, trying to sort of mimic nature yep. or match our match our peak nutrient demand with peak forage supply, which for us is May, uh, really. And so, we put the rams in November. I think we'll start April fifteenth is the official start date. Usually get one, a, you know, about a week early. Um, gap requires ninety days at least, so you know prior to weaning so we'll uh but it kind of matches and more and more i've realized i think i heard doc kennedy say a long i know i did a long time ago and back when i was like all grass-fed or nothing you know he was like man if i was in the south i'd run more ewes and just wean the lambs and feed them and he was right because i now knowing what our grasses can do so that's what yeah. we'll we'll 
we've been creep feeding the lambs and then they'll they'll be on pasture with access to feed after weaning um and um what what was the question though oh just your schedule so oh yeah 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 so uh lambing we wean now here at the end of july uh last year we shipped our first fat finished lambs in october and the last ones in early february at the bottom end um usually the peak of the ethnic market around here is january february so in my ideal world they're all gone by the end of january yeah um and I don't really want to feed them that long again, but that's a long time. Yeah. 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 So. I've always, I've always felt like time, time costs more money than a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you can have bad cost of gains and market swings and everything, but if you're holding those animals too long that just, yeah, it, it just adds longer up. So chance for something to go wrong. I just so many dollars wrapped up into that animal every, every day you add a dollar and it just, it can yeah. get, it gets expensive quick. So part of that last year was meeting my, you know, taking care of my relationships and meeting yep. my commitments. And so I didn't, eventually I'll have enough lambs where I can meet those commitments and just sell the rest, sell the bottom end in January yeah. and be done. But, um, so that's pretty much the year we haven't done a lot of, fl- you know, so they, they go in before Thanksgiving, middle of November. And at that time, if we've had good rain, our fescues, so that is one of our advantages, I guess, is we have warm and cool season grasses here in, yeah. the, in the middle. And so it doesn't take, uh, no, I haven't really ever done much flushing. doesn't take a lot to get them bred if you're on good pasture. Yeah. Um, well, and I think naturally too, where like the U, your U is able to, with the five month gestation period, you're able to wean the lamb, dry the U and then breed. Cattle, you can't yeah. wean the calf and breed. You have to breed while it's a pair, and so that nutrition demand on that you that cow is higher, and so getting her getting her on that rising plane of nutrition during breeding is much more challenging. Whereas the you um, is a lot easier to create a rising plane of nutrition because you can put them on uh, you know not the most new you know not the highest protein feed drop a point and then put them on good feed you know, a week before breed up and you can have that rising plane of nutrition and not hurt the lactation or land, you know, you're yeah. not hurting the energy demand for that. So yeah, you've, you heard all my struggles about, you know, cattle breed up the last couple yeah, of days. I mean, it, but it's, it's a real thing. Yeah. It made yeah. me like, well, maybe sheep actually fit better here than cattle do. But, yeah. I mean, there's uh, so much value to getting that lamb off and then getting yeah. that you using that time to, you know, utilize your nutrition and feed better yeah well and that yeah. for us it's per that's when we're building our stockpile for the winter so yeah. all of a sudden i got to dry you i can just put the brakes on the rotation yeah and get a lot of utilization out of some dank feed and yeah but and, then these heifers here that you got to get yeah. bred up you got to get them on the best stuff right now yeah because that yeah. yeah we just had a long discussion of whether we were going to mix the heifers with the yeah. sheep or <laughs> And ended up deciding not to mix. We're gonna run two pretty groups. Those bulls are working like crazy right yeah. now, and yeah, don't upset what's working. Which, which normally wouldn't be a tough decision, except for we're dry. Like yeah, uh, and you know we're having one of those years where they're going north of us and south of us. Yeah, I watched like, last night a giant cell. Just I mean, amazing lightning storm. Some of the craziest lightning I ever seen in my life. But it was all just on the other side <laughs> of that kettle, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Uh, well, real cool. Well, I, yeah, I, I, uh, 
Yeah. Oh, I got to ask you Naren's question. Uh. <laughs> what? What? How do you define a farmer? How do you define a farmer or rancher? You know, s- stewards in there somewhere. That would be ne- my one word answer to Naren. But I've, I think I can't. I probably didn't get this idea on my own. But it's like, it's being a farmer is the point where you know man intersects with creation yeah you get to not you sort of get to play god the most but you also learn the most about god like yeah it it is farming is mankind's intersection point with nature yeah and and it's just a privilege to be able to do it absolutely um so yeah it's you don't do it for the money for sure uh generally but (laughs) no uh, and that's not saying you got to live broke yeah, no, you no. Know, it's it just you know, there you do it, you do it for other reasons too. Like there's there's other reasons. Yeah. I, you know, farmers are farmers. And yeah, yeah. But, uh, both of us talked. I mean, but not everybody. It's almost a calling, right? Like not everybody yeah. wants to do it and or needs to do it. But you and I were both talking last night. Yeah. So like, well, well, I think as, as the world that. gets more affluent, you don't have to choose it, right? Yeah. And then like, as you become less affluent, or you're not, you know. In a third world country, everybody's a farmer because they have to be. In yeah. a first world country, everybody's a farmer because they want to be. Yeah. And yeah. it, you know, and there's a pendulum between there. But yeah. Anyway, well, thank you very much for sitting down with me this afternoon, and I can't thank you enough for yeah. your hospitality. <laughs> any any shout outs or any plugs you want to give to any of your friends or influences or yourself? Well, you know, I I would not. Other than my sheep buddies, you know, I have a farmer friend, Naren Pratt, who, uh, yeah, who's a good friend and mentor in a lot of ways and a very successful business person and, uh, you know, has probably helped push me, uh, you know, probably wouldn't be doing this podcast if, if, uh, <laughs> he didn't make me. So yeah. there you go, Naren, uh, ranching for profit. I'll, you know, we do that. It's been a, it's been a great thing for us. Um, who else, I, he won't listen to it, but RP Cook is a, is uh yeah. where i've learned most of my grazing from on the cattle side and i'm sure i'm leaving out some people and oh god alan nation's books are all i mean there's a host of books but i'll and i got hell joel sat like if it wasn't for joel i wouldn't be back on the farm yeah if it wasn't for alan savory and holistic management i wouldn't still be here yeah you know? but um so and yeah and i don't know if my if you know Rachel and I's parents, none of this is possible without the the next the prior generation Support. setting us up to be able to do this. Yeah. And it took all of my family resources and all of her. We couldn't have done it without each other um, and our families. So yeah. it's kind of a unique deal. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. It's been good to hang out. Yeah. Sheep (laughs) stuff you should know, and uh, we'll catch you next week. (laughs) 